Today's guest on the podcast is the Reverend Jeff Grant. I heard Jeff on Ritual's podcast just a couple of days ago, actually, and I reached out to him and was like, come on my podcast. And we booked it like within a couple of days. And it's so super awesome and thrilled that he took the time to come play in my playground for a little bit. But the Reverend Jeff Grant, he is an ordained minister with over three decades of experience in crisis management, business law, reentry and recovery. He's almost, almost two decades sober, and he spent time in prison for white collar crime um, and addiction. He didn't go to prison for addiction because you don't go to prison for addiction. But that's kind of part of the downward spiral that happened that led him to prison. And his current ministry, you can check him out at prisonist.org as in feminist, but prisonist. And the work that he and his wife are doing with um, white-collar crime and criminals and the family and kind of aftermath um, for healing and recovery for all sorts of individuals who are suffering from addiction and um, just the aftermath of these crimes and and the family ripple effect and impact. It's, It's really interesting work and much needed in our world. Um, honestly, anytime someone stands in their truth and tells their story and then heads out to help other people as a result, it's incredibly inspiring. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with the Reverend Jeff Grant. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Reverend Jeff Grant. Hi. Hi, Meredith. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. I'm so glad to speak with you. I heard about your story on obviously Rich Roll. I'm sure everyone's telling you that now. Yeah, yeah. There's been a, there's been a lot of action. I know. Here. And I thought the second it came out and I listened to it, I was like, I better ask this guy quickly <laughs> because he's probably going to get really busy. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking the time. Um, the thing that really struck me about your story and that is a lot of people's story is how we kind of come from rock bottom to then be our best selves and to help other people. So let's talk a little bit about your story as far as addiction and, and your career and kind of how this all started. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I was um, a successful lawyer in New York City and then moved up to the suburbs. We already lived in the suburbs, but moved uh, my office up there and kind of um, started to do very, very well and representing some large real estate companies, some companies that, that, um, regional. So I'm not sure you would have heard, heard of, but certainly Metro New York area. Mm-hmm. And, um, in the course of, um, representing one, I, uh, I played a pickup basketball game with, with the, um, property, uh, property director of my client. And, um, I, um, ruptured my Achilles tendon oh. and, um, it was ugly. <laughs> And, um, I went right down, but, um, at that point I'd been sober for about five years. Um, I, I certainly didn't have the kind of raging addiction I wound up with. So what but, were you sober from? Like, what was the first round? Uh, just... Uh, just a little bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not literally everything, but you know, I was a kind of a normal guy. I smoked some pot and I, uh, there were years when I had, uh, back in the club era, you know, I had, 
I had uh, done some cocaine and things like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, when I um, when I went down, uh, I just won painkillers and uh, and uh, I asked the orthopedist for them and he gave them to me. And um, when I no longer needed them therapeutically. Uh, um, I searched for other doctors who were friends of mine or, or colleagues, and um, I wouldn't say that I don't know if it was right to say they were happy to give them to me, but they did, mm-hmm. and, and they did for the next ten years. And um, for um, often, you know, sometimes multiple times a week, and I was uh, I was hooked. So, how long ago was this? Um, my uh, my injury was in 1992, okay. and so it was from 1992 through 2002. And um, what my um, as I got deeper into my addiction, my uh, my my ability to perceive things changed, and to show up at work changed, and my health deteriorated, and there started to be money issues. And the day came when um, there wasn't enough cash. In the um, to pay make payroll in the business, and um, the deal I made with the devil was to uh, invade the client escrow account so that we could make payroll, mm. and from there everything just spiraled completely down. And then um, when 9/11 happened, I took it very hard, mostly because I my business was already failing, and um, I. Uh, I put in an application for a uh, small business um, administration loan um, because I um, I took the position that my our, our uh, the decrease in our business was uh, at least in part as a result of 9/11 and that was probably true but you know mostly it was because of uh, my rampant um, prescription opioid addiction and um, I lied on that application. I told them I had a uh, an office in New York City, and I didn't need to tell them that at all because in Westchester, where my office was, was in a county that had been affected, um, and I would have gotten the loan anyway. Oh wow! So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There and you, you had go. some time to think about that small detail, didn't you? Well, the thing is, is that the things I did, I would never would have let a client do. Right. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I just, I was done. I was crazy, and the drugs were just not allowing me at all to focus. And um, and then I, uh, and then when the money came in, and it came in pretty promptly, it was two hundred forty-seven thousand dollars. The first thing I did was uh, pay off credit cards that I had. I had run up to try to, you know, save my business, even though there, uh, I should have known there was really no saving it. And um, I wasn't allowed to use those SBA funds to pay off personal credit cards right. either. So it was a, you know, everything, all my thinking was crazy. And and I knew this. I mean, of course, I had, you know, I had sophisticated business clients. Right. And especially crazy. as a lawyer, I mean, the second you touch your escrow money, you know. Oh yeah, so you know I'm, you're I'm, at the bottom. And, and you know, and I, I what I didn't know. This is what I, what I didn't know was that I had a very, I, I had a case of undiagnosed bipolar disorder, and it, and honestly, it's not like 
I don't know about anybody else's bipolar disorder, but mine greatly affected my mood and ability to focus. And I had been self-medicating. Mm-hmm. And, and so there it was, you know, and, and almost anything that was that difficult or that um, was, was pushing me over the edge. Right. And um, so I understand it now, but I, it's not like I, I blame the drugs or I blame the bipolar disorder. The, you know, it's not a blame thing. Yeah. It's so just, when did, when you were, I'm, I'm three and a half years sober. So, oh, congratulations. Thank you. And, and I know how tenuous that is and how it can go at any time. And it's, it's interesting that you were sober for five years and then, you know, this injury projected you back into to that life. But um, when you, the first round, like when you start, when you knew you had a problem, what was it? Do you think it was the undiagnosed bipolar disorder that kind of drove you to the self-medicating? Was it just stress? Because I always find it really interesting when people become addicted. Well, I, I, I pretty much had an addictive personality anyway. Yeah. And, and over the years, my friends who I had um, you know, partied with, um, they, they were stopping, but I wasn't right. If one and, is good, 10 is better. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and the truth is, is that, is that, you know, I had no real, I had no real perception about any of that whatsoever. You know, I just, I, 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 I you know, I just was living my life and my life included, some drinking and included some some so-called recreational drugs, but um, it, it got out of hand um, in the mid 1980s, which is when I, my first attempt to get sober. And I went to see a therapist, and I saw him pretty regularly. And um, I got that's when I got um, um, I, I stopped uh, drinking and stopped doing drugs. But I never went to AA, and I never saw a psychiatrist. I just saw him, and I, I definitely credit him with saving my life at that point. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think that um, I would have been served by uh, being introduced to some other things like AA and psychiatry. But uh, that didn't happen until uh, later, and so that's just the way it is. Yeah. So what happened as the downward spiral continued? Um, let's see. So, so now I'm uh, the, uh, the subject of a, uh, investigation into my finances and I'm trying to save my, my law firm. And the day it became clear that that could no longer happen. And I had already offloaded my, uh, my staff and I'd offloaded my, uh, my clients and I've offloaded all, everything about the law firm um, because I, I wanted to find them a safe home and I, I was able to do that. And now I'm pretty much alone in my office um, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And um, I got some you know, disturbing news about a uh, ex-business partner of mine who had um, sent some very damaging information to the uh, character committee. And there was no, and he, he was right. I mean, I wasn't, and I, again, I don't blame him either. And, um, you know, all of which I did pretty much, I guess, in a stupor. And um, I, um, I uh, told my ethics lawyer to resign my license. And that was the night I got my last 
prescription, and um, that night I tried to kill myself. Wow. So that was pretty grim. Maybe very grim, I guess. Is, is, yeah, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want yeah. to. <laughs> it's, like, it's like twenty percent grim. <laughs> like yeah. that's really. I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> the, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it was it was a, it was bad. Yeah. And um, and so, like, uh, um, I went to rehab for you know for a bunch of weeks, and I remember sitting on the front steps of the rehab, um, and um, my daughter's looking at me like I was a Martian. Like you're this. You're, this is not the dad we know. This is not. What are you talking about? And um, you know, I just had to tell him the truth, or the truth as I knew it at that point. Anyway, you know, yeah. of course, of course, in the program, it took years for the truth to really come out. Well, I thought what was so interesting about, and not that <laughs> it's probably not the right word, but the interesting about your suicide attempt was, you tried to OD on pills it, you know, quote unquote, didn't work. And you just woke up the next day and like well, dealt with it. Well, I woke up, you know, in a, in a pool of vomit. Right. And, but, uh, but it, candidly, it wasn't the first time I'd ever woken up in vomit. You know, I mean, this is like, you know, that's getting real, but, right. but I had never taken anything like the, the volume I had taken that night. And how how much was it? Uh, and you had a high tolerance at this point, right? I, I mean, mean, yeah, but literally, it was it was 40, 40 hits of Demerol. Oh my gosh! So I mean that you know yeah I mean yeah um, that should have been enough. And I'm, I'm again I'm, I'm speaking like I'm disappointed, but that's but that's <laughs> no, but that's not. that's but that's not the point I'm making. The right. point I'm making no, no. is that is that I actually. I actually thought it would be enough. Right. And, um, no, it's funny. I talked to a lot of suicide survivors, myself mm, included, mm. and we, you kind of just have to joke about it. I mean, it, it's grim, but it's, I, I get it. I'm not taking oh, your humor. Right, humor right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. Okay. Cause the first time I published the story about this, I heard from, from the from the from the suicide survivor survivor community, right? And this is unbelievable that I am not a suicide survivor. I am a suicide attempt survivor. Suicide survivors are the people are the families of people who actually uh, commit suicide. Yeah, yeah, that's it, true. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I mean, just to think that there's that distinction even in the in the language. That's true. I know it's really weird. Survivor, no, that's good. See, educated every day. I'm telling you, and, yeah. and, and I had chills because there are there are families out there whose loved one has actually killed mm -hmm. themselves. Right. You know, and and you know, and that would have been my family. That would have been my kids. You know, so and at the time, it, you're not even thinking clearly. You, no. you're not, you don't even know. Like no. at that point, life felt so dismal to you. It was over. Your license was gone. Your business was gone. So what did it look like as you sat on the steps of rehab and, and looked at your daughter and what was that um, like? Well, mostly it was, um, it was, uh, you know, I was still, I was still insane and they had started me on bipolar meds, so I was a little, you know, hazy from that. But 
in a way that was also kind of a, re- a relief. Like whatever I was running from, I'm not running from anymore. Right. You know, like it, it was exhausting for the three, four, five years before that. I don't know how many years looking over my shoulder and hoping I wouldn't get caught and trying to hide the the vials of these pills and oh my god I mean, it was exhausting and uh, n- now i'm in this place where you know they're charged with keeping me safe right like wow and um i don't know that i was able to you know formulate all those thoughts back then but i certainly knew that i was you know that i had some sense of re- of relief so how long were you in rehab? Well, it, it actually, um, it was seven weeks total, but, um, there were, um, I was, um, after, after the first couple of weeks, um, they let me out to go to IOP. That's intensive outpatient for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is. And, um, I didn't last long. They, they, in IOP, they, they, they told me I had to come back. <laughs> How come? <laughs> what did you do? Well, there is a story, of course, because, you know, you know, right. if you've been in the program three and a half years, you already know that there's a story for everything. Right. Right. And in this case, what happened was, is that um, there uh, in Westchester County, County, you could like be on parkways and go in a big circle. Like, you know, for like from all the way or like all the way around the county. And on my third or fourth loop on these on this um, highway, because I couldn't figure out how to get off the highway, <laughs> and I called them up on the car phone, and I said, I, I called up my counselor. I said, "This is what's going on," and they said, and they gave me directions to the hospital. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm telling you, I was out of my mind. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you went back. I went back. <laughs> Does everyone get this candid on this on this on oh, the show? Man. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had Amy oh, Dresner on. I don't know if oh. you know her. She wrote mm. the book My Fair Junkie, and she. Was, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. It doesn't get more candid than than me. Oh good. Like you and I are just scratching the surface. It's fine. <laughs> well, well, we can go deeper. That's it's okay. Fine. No, yeah. I mean it's it's funny. Just like when you were telling that story, I had a memory of. Of a time that I was driving to Atlanta. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I was alone, which means mm-hmm. my husband was somewhere else. And I was mm-hmm. blitzed out of my mind. Not good to be drinking and driving, but it's part mm-hmm. of my story. And I had to call wherever I was going. I think it was a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And they had to give me directions because I couldn't like see my GPS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I couldn't yeah. figure it out. It was just too complicated. And this person at, at the restaurant... I remember they kept repeating and, and it was just so frustrating. So, I mean, <laughs> it's like you look back on it and think, oh, that's oh not God. funny. But you were in that situation, living it, and it was terrifying and you couldn't figure it out. And um, Yeah, there's a lot I, of those stories. See, what people in the rooms don't know is that half the time we're laughing. And, you know, it's not really funny as much as it is laughing with identification right you know like the that the the how ridiculous we we were and how ridiculous so many of us still are right until we 
mature enough until we start to become you know the uh, some kind of uh, of, of um, getting close to the the person that God intends us to be right and yeah. like I have a I have a good friend Katie I'll I'll tell her name she is not of the addict brain you know she's yeah. a normal person that just mm-hmm. doesn't think this way and so she listens to my podcast and after she listens she'll go you know send me all the brain exploding emojis she's like what the heck <laughs> like when i talked to amy like i talked about how i have all this eating disorder issues and how i really considered developing a cutting problem in hopes that that would cure my eating disorder and amy and i laughed and laughed about it you know because it's just so ludicrous like that's how addicts can think and so, so my friend katie well, sends me a text she's like are you okay and i'm like no i'm fine i'm not you know but some people just don't they can't comprehend and of course not it is well, the, yeah yeah i was i was bulimic for 25 years oh that's so rare that and, guys say that yeah well that's the thing is yeah. that i never had a guy and it was only once i came into uh um into aa that i heard women talking about it and I, and, I, and I felt like I could talk about it. And, and it wasn't something I regularly talked about in AA, but certainly enough that you know, someone, uh, a woman reached out to me and, and offered me a, a lifeline to go to um, Overeaters Anonymous and kind, of, and kind of work through. And, and what people don't know about, at least with people, about people with eating disorders, or at least about me, is that it's the loneliest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and it's all about shame and trying to control things that, that, you know, there's everything's out of control. And the one thing I could thought I could control neurotically was, was, you know, when I was binging or purging and it was terrible. Yeah. And, and, um, and I have, and I haven't done it since I got sober. So now it's, so it's not only 17 years of, of sobriety. It's also 17 years since that. Wow. And, and I was talking to a, uh, my therapist about it. And, um, and he, and he said to me, um, well, do you think those two things are related? Because you know how therapists talk. Yeah, they don't ever tell you anything. They want you to come. I have, I'm in therapy for the first time, and I'm more frustrated than ever about my damn life. Right? It's, it's true. It's like taking a, de- it's like taking a deposition. Jeez. I so, quit th- being an attorney, so I didn't have to do this shit. Why are you? <laughs> so, so you think those two things are related? And and I and, and I said, well, like probably. I mean, like you know, right? Everything's related. Everything's related. And he said, and this is what he said to me. He said, you know, you're probably all that time you were you were doing the um, you're doing opioids. Um, you probably were making yourself nauseated, hmm. and without the nausea. You know, you were you were self perpetuating the cycle. Yeah. And the truth is, is that that I haven't felt that inner urge, that inner thing. I haven't felt it in sobriety. So weird. That's so interesting. And I always I always wished and this is another just like messed up plane of it all. But I could I could never make myself purge. And I was too lazy to be like an exercise purger. So like I would get so mad at the bulimics in my life that could throw up. 
Because I was oh, yes. like, this is not fair. I don't, and I was like never into like the, the hemorrhoid, not the hemorrhoid, but the suppositories, you know, the oh, yeah, laxatives. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just like, I always wanted to be able to purge and I never could. And so mine <laughs> oh, would turn into just self-hate. Like I would internalize mine. You yeah, know? Well, I'm sure your <laughs> listeners are, are, are loving the purging laxative conversation. Oh yeah, man. But, they can turn it off. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. fine. <laughs> but, it's fine. But 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 the thing is, is that uh, I wasn't thin. No, you know, uh, no, aren't though. Are no, they? no, no. You know, I mean, I, it wasn't like you know uh, a runway model kind of <laughs> purging thing. You know what I mean? This is this is like I was just eating as much as I could, and then somehow my mind thinking I was I was I was making up for it. Well, beyond like not to be your therapist, but yeah, I mean, do you say. think it was related in a way other than physical, other than the nausea? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. of course. No, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, at the bottom of all of this stuff, even about drug addiction and certainly with the guys I work with, you know, who, uh, in, in the white collar ministry, we haven't gotten up to that part of the story yet, but, yeah. but, but it, it's always about some kind of uh lack of love and lack of uh, uh of uh acceptance and, and childhood rejection yeah. it's oh, always there it, a, is. There it is yep yep it's okay all, so let's fast forward to your your yeah because i want to talk about that that's good stuff so um not to interrupt you but <laughs> i just interrupted you so whatever what can i do now i already did it hey, we, we um, do have 24 hours i saw the name of the show <laughs> oh i didn't tell you that this is actually a 24-hour <laughs> oh yeah that's right Re- real time with right uh, so you had a buddy one. that <laughs> real time all day 24 hours we're not, yeah, right. not on any sort of drugs doing it either right um okay so you you had a buddy that kind of reported you you got sober yeah and you were in the clear Life was yeah, fine. Exactly. And, right. um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a good, at that point, a good AA soldier. You know, I'm coming in, I'm going to three, four meetings a day. I went to over 1,200 my first two, uh, my first year, and then another 1,200 my second year. And, and, um, I don't know that that's a lot by, by, by newcomer standards, but, you know, for people who, who've never, who've never addressed their issues to think that you would actually go three times a day is, you know, it's, it seems monumental and it is monumental, but I was staying sober and, um, I didn't, um, you know, I, 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 the, the money I had borrowed from the SBA, I had never even, it was completely blocked out of my mind. I'm talking, I'm talking about complete denial. And I got a call one day, um, from some federal agents who um, told me there was a warrant out for my arrest in connection with the, the misrepresentations I had made on that loan application. And um, over the course of the next few weeks, uh, turned myself in and got arraigned. And now I was a uh, um, someone with a, you know, a, a criminal justice problem. And uh, I knew I was going to plead guilty. And we just uh, tried to work that out um, in, in a way that was uh, as elegant as possible, because um, there wasn't going to be trial or anything like that. And um, I did plead guilty. And then, as it turns out, I had to wait two years to get sentenced. Oh my gosh! 
And um, and and that was it wasn't because of any complications in my case because sometimes there are, are defendants who have co-defendants or it's a very complicated issue and so they have to wait a long time. I know people who are waiting five years to get sentenced, for example, but that's because of the sizing or complexity of this of the of the of the issues like large hedge funds and things like that. But for mine, it just so happens that in the interim time, um, there had been a Supreme Court decision regarding the uh, sentencing guidelines and that they were going to be no longer mandatory, but only advisory. So for over a year, not one defendant in, in the federal system got sentenced. So I was just one of them. But that probably worked in your favor, didn't it? Um, was there well, mandatory for yours? Or? Well, um, it turned out to be pretty much the same thing because I was sentenced um, my, my, my guidelines were, um, I think 24 to 27 months and I got sentenced to 18 months and primarily because of the, of the work I had done in the, in the interim. So I was, I was almost four years sober when I went to prison, but, um, I, I credit all of my success. I credit, I credit even the downward departure in my sentencing with, with being in AA and, and the service I did in AA and the and the uh, and just showing up and being a member among members and having commitments and and uh, sponsees and sponsors and everything, so it was uh, um, it, it worked in my in my favor at least to that extent because I was able to show uh, uh, a, tra- a a transformation at that point. But of course, um, it, it would have been great to get it out of the way. And move forward with my life earlier. I mean, you take Martha Stewart for example. Um, she got um, she she made a deal. Whatever the uh, everyone makes a deal, but there's a plea bargain for her to um, for her to plea. And within six months, she was she she was doing her time and did her time and came out fast. Mm-hmm. And because that was a you know that was a, a tactical decision. As to how to put her on, you know, on, on the best track, and she had she had very uh, um, high priced lawyers who who understood that, and she was making a decision as as a, a billionaire would. But not everybody has the the opportunity to think that clearly and to have attorneys of that caliber. And where were you, kind of, in your? career or finances at this point? I mean, what was working? I mean, was everything still kind of a mess with that? Everything was a mess. You know, I had sold, uh, I had had a bunch of businesses and things. So I'd sold businesses and retired and done all kinds of things. And, um, and, um, but, um, what, but before I went to prison, um, then I spent 13 and a half months actually in the prison and that was an amazing transform, transformative experience. It was. Um, I don't recommend it. I don't think it's. <laughs> I don't think it's a good thing for anybody necessarily. But um, I was. I I understood that it was part of my recovery, mm. and that that's only something that you could understand. Having, as you know, I was I was about this. I, I at that point I was about the same. Um, um, length of sobriety that you are now. Right. And I would understand that. I don't yeah. think I did any white collar crimes. I don't think so. 
Um, but I can imagine that if someone presented me with evidence <laughs> that I had, I'd be like, well, yeah, I've got to go do this. I gotta. <laughs> but, but, but you'd understand it as, as, as part of your recovery. Yeah. That, yeah. that, you know, that to me, it wasn't the punishment. It was something that was real and something that the more I adri- accepted and surrendered to, the more successful I could be. And so I, I started a program of, of recovery inside prison for myself. Oh, did you? For myself. Because there, there, there were very few resources in there. So um, what I did was once I got into the prison, I um, had three goals that I was going to accomplish in the 13 or 14 months I would be there. One each for mind, body, and spirit. And that meant every day I had to work on each of those goals. And for my uh, for my body, I wound up um, walking around the track fourteen thousand laps, um, which was the equivalent of which was thirty five hundred miles, which is the equivalent of walking from New York to Los Angeles. And uh, I did it in ten mile in ten mile increments. So that was three or four hours a day. I was on the track, walking the track in a circle, and. when I, and I would listen to NPR or whatever I could pick up because uh, I was in the middle of Pennsylvania, but um, I was able to get the college radio stations and things like that. And then I would go to the, um, the library because there's a, there's a library in the prison that was kind of like a junior high school library, but they had atlases and things like that. And uh, I marked off the, the, um, the route in 10 mile increments. So every day I was walking, say, from, you know, like on, on this leg, I'm walking from Akron to Cincinnati, mm-hmm. you know, vicariously. Right. And so I would learn everything I could about the destination I was going to. <laughs> and so that just kept me busy. So you're like and, a geography, like, nut now. <laughs> well, I, I always kind of like that. Yeah. But, but the thing is, is that people start, I was walking the track with people. Yeah. And these people were, you know, they were in, in the most difficult positions of their lives. But they were, so I didn't go to a camp. I went to, I went to real prison. And so there were, there were guys from the inner city there. And there were drug dealers. And there were guys who were um, in uh, MS-13, you know, the gang. And, uh, um, and I would walk and talk to them. It was fascinating. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and, um uh, there was this one Israeli guy I was walking the track with for a little while. Um, um, and um, as we're walking the track, you know, he, he was looking around and he said to me um, that that it reminded him of living on the kibbutz. And I, you know, I, I'd never really been, I've never been to Israel, so I didn't know what a kibbutz really looked like. And he said, well, you know, it looks like pretty much like this, except that on a kibbutz, the the fences are there to keep the bad guys out and here the fences are here to keep the bad guys in wow and, and so it's all perspective you know yeah. i mean and and in truth those fences did keep us safe so it's uh, you know it's all perspective and then uh for my um for my mind i uh i took uh, about 200 guitar lessons in in that year or in that 13 months and I became pretty good on guitar and I learned theory and I, I 
was really able to experience a, a degree of mastery. I mean, I wasn't—I didn't become a master, but as my mastery increased, my joy increased, and I could play a pretty good guitar right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool, and that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have, you know, the 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 kind of monastic time to actually work on myself. Yeah. And then I found, uh, you know, a new connection with faith in God in there that led me into uh, going to divinity school when I got out of um, prison. And um, Did anyone in prison impact you with that decision, or was it the time you kind of working on the spirit? <laughs> well, I, I certainly got to experience a lot of religious services that I'd never experienced before. Because everybody goes up to the education building um on Friday evenings, say at six or se six and seven o'clock, or two different periods, and in that building, all the all the classrooms in there are turned over to religious services. So there's Islam and Brotherhood of Islam and Hindu and um, and Catholic and Protestant and uh, and Jewish. And at the time, I was I was I was Jewish. And um, although I, I still consider myself Jewish, but I have been baptized, and uh, and um, and um, I'm a, a reverend in the, in, in the, you know in Christianity, mm -hmm. but I still consider myself Jewish. And um, so I learned about a lot of that stuff in there. And uh, you know, it's not quite the same as uh, out on the outside because it's kind of like religion in a petri dish, right? But. Um, is profound you know people whose, whose lives are living on the uh, you know on the edge and the extremes and so that was really really powerful so divinity school how was that um it was hard yeah it was hard I, I, I yeah i think on the ritual broadcast i was I, I mentioned that it was harder than law school yeah you did and to me, it was much harder than law school. First, first of all, I hadn't been to—I'd been out of college. I'd been out of law school for 28 years at that point, so I, I didn't even know how to read. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I couldn't read for five minutes. I mean, right, was, right. And all this theological and ideological, and I mean, forget it. it. Was, but in law school, and for those of you who want to become lawyers, let me tell you: you know what course you're in. You're in contracts. You're in real estate. You're in torts. You know what course you're in. Right. And then pretty pretty much the book tells you what you're going to read. So if you're in real estate, today we're going to learn about title. Tomorrow we're going to learn about the rule against perpetuities, whatever it is. You know what you're reading about. But the concepts in divinity school were so out there for me. So I'm reading about philosophers and I'm trying to pull this all together and I, my mind is not. You know, I'm, I'm with kids who are half my age who are, you know, who steeped in um, in the Bible and religious studies since they were kids. And uh, and it became a little bit difficult for that in that in that sense. But on the other sense, almost everybody in uh, in seminary is there for a reason. And mostly it's through some kind of personal suffering. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, and so from that standpoint, um my 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 best friend, for example, in or one of my best friends, in seminary was um, transgender. And early in the early in the the kind of 
transgender uh, awareness movement. And, um, and uh, they were suffering the same kind of stigmatization and, sh- and shame that I was. Yeah. So, you know, again, just like pretty much like AA, you know, where right. we ad- identify with feelings, not facts. Was it in seminary that you kind of decided the, and someone's mowing every time I do a podcast, yeah. my, neighbor, my neighbor knows I'm podcasting and he gets out of his mower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to put a sign out. I'm podcasting. Yeah. Get your mower out. Um, so sorry for that. That's all right. But what was it in seminary that you kind of saw the trajectory of where you were headed or as far as your, your, you know, what you're doing now? Um, not really. I mean, I, I mean, at that point I was just trying to put, I was putting one foot ahead of the other and, and, you know, my, my, I mean, my whole plan throughout my early sobriety was, was anywhere is better than where I am right now. So, just keep moving, keep moving forward and, and, and kind of just give up the concept of having a plan other than the fact that it will continue to evolve and there's a serpentine path and, and wherever it goes, it goes. And, and, um, uh, my job was to be in a, a, a state of readiness for the next opportunity when it presented itself. And, and for pretty much that's, that was the case back then before, things started to come together, but because people don't know, you know, people don't relate to the amount of, of preparation it takes to become an overnight success. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, (laughs) you know, like, well, either uh, that or you just have to be stupid and like fall asleep while you're playing a video game and then you become famous. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I guess that's true. But (laughs) But no, yeah, totally. You know, but, um, you know, I, I remember there, uh, seeing on TV, um, uh, some running back on a football game who had made this miraculous 98 yard run or something or other. Right. And he was, uh, and, uh, and he was being hoisted up on the shoulders of, of his teammates or something or other. And they said, you know, um, you know, you, how does it feel to be an overnight success or something like that? <laughs> and, and, and he said, he said, well, the 20 years it took to get here of lifting <laughs> weights every day and playing a bit on a football field. Right. That's what it took. Right. Right. And that's how I was feeling, you know? So, um, after seminary, I was, uh, I was working in, um, in the inner city in Bridgeport at a church and I was on the um, worship team, and I was on the, you know, I was, I had a prison ministry we started there, inner city, but I was living in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is, uh, I raised, I raised my kids in Rye, New York, which is the next town, and then right over the border is Greenwich, and uh, which is probably most people know is one of the wealthiest communities in the country, and um, although I had, I was living in an apartment, I wasn't living in one of these mansions. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I was going to AA meetings and for the 10 years, pretty much that, that, um, from um, when I got sober to when this part of the story evolved, I probably worked with a hundred guys who were in somewhere in their, in their, um, in their curve of going to prison or going through, um, some kind of drug and alcohol slash, criminal justice issue and in Greenwich these guys were you know they were they were 
um, wealthy and they were hedge fund guys and they were lawyers and they were bankers. And, and so, and, and they didn't really have their problems were not dissimilar from the problems of the people I was working with in Bridgeport, but except in, in some ways they had it worse because there was no support for them whatsoever. There was no community of support. There were no services. They, they were just, their lives were over and they had to take this huge fall from grace. And I was seeing it from both sides. Um, and I'd lived it now from both sides. I'm living it from both sides. And I was blogging about it at night, the, 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 the craziness of of these two communities, the, 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 one of the wealthiest and one of the poorest communities in the, in the country being in the same county and being only 20 miles from each other and how I had a foot in each one and, you know, how I was living this bifurcated kind of life. And um, a reporter from a hedge fund magazine came upon my blog and called me up. And, um, you know, he, and he literally asked me, uh, 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 you know, he introduced himself and he said to me, are, are you the, the guy who's the minister to hedge funders? <laughs> and and th- that, that was the first moment that, the, that there was a merger between all of these things. That, it be, you know, that this could be a good idea. Right. And, um, and in some ways I'd been doing it anyway, but I just didn't really put that, that label on it. So, um, that's what led my wife and my wife, Lynn Springer is my, um, you know, my partner. And, uh, in fact, we're married 10 years last week. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Which is a big deal. And, uh, and I met her in the program and, um, and so we, um, at that point we, we, we did everything we could to try to figure out what this meant and how, how it could work or not work. And we made a lot of mistakes along the way, but, um, you know, we finally hit a groove now where we've worked with, uh, hundreds of families of people who've been prosecuted for white collar crimes and the term white collar is kind of fluid. You know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really have to be a white collar crime or a financial crime. But if you have a financial guy or a lawyer or someone with a license who's got his third DUI and he's going to prison and a felony, he's not going back to work at that job anymore. Right. So it's really more about people who are disenfranchised and don't have another community to which they can attach to. Because they really get rejected. Yeah. Right. I mean. Yeah. 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 And their families and and community and job and everything. Yeah. I mean, we, um, I I had been approached pretty early on by someone who knew the wife of a, one of the largest, um, financial prosecutions, certainly in Connecticut. And, you know, this is the, you know, New York metro area is a lot of prosecutions and, um, this is a lot of business. And, um, her husband was in prison and she was left with $150 in the bank. And she didn't know what she was going to do. I mean, what do you do? She's living in this big house. And um, she had no one to re- rely upon. So it wasn't, she couldn't afford a lawyer. She couldn't afford accounts. She couldn't afford anything. And, uh, and we, we were impressed by her. And we, uh, we were... 
we empathized with her and we decided to take her her situation on and so i i went to friends and and friends of friends and put and put together a, a legal team and a forensics team and we took on her case um and it was this beautiful combination of lawyers lawyering and ministering and uh, the lawyers donated I would guess a million dollars worth of pro bono time. Wow. Because they because everyone kind of believed in the idea that the the wives the wives and children or the spouses and children are really the first victims. And because these people's money had been had been frozen um, by the government, um, that included her money. And everything that she owned, even though it had nothing, she had her own money. She was, she was, and they took, they froze her money. So she couldn't even defend herself. And so we took this on um, and we, uh, and, and we formed um, what became the, a, uh, a group of people who take on the cases of innocent spouses. And that's still going on. And um, in her case, it was the first time in the country that a person's um, a, a spouse of someone being prosecuted for white collar crime, the spouse's um, assets had been returned to her in the while the case was still active. Wow. So she, you know, so. I mean, her life was altered irre- irrevocably. I mean, it's no longer the big splashy life. But last I heard, she, you know, she and her kids are living this nice, simple life, and no longer under the the specter of all this. And you know that that allows us to sleep well at night, thinking that we did a good job for her. And we've been contacted by so many other other spouses since then. And and because it's. It's it's a it's an epidemic, right? So, what have you learned about the concept of suffering and all of that you've been through and all that you've seen now? Because I think a lot of people might say, "Oh, yeah, the poor white collar families, the poor people that lived re- wealthy for twenty years," and the you know, have you found that it's kind of a hard sympathy to pull or do do you have a whole definite like reinvented definition of suffering? Because I know my view of suffering has, has changed a lot over the last few years. Yeah. Well, that, that was happening in the program anyway. Yeah. But, um, the thing is that there's, there's certainly very little, when we started, there was no empathy and no compassion whatsoever for these families. None. That's changed somewhat. Um, it has changed. And, um, and I, I think part of that is because everybody we know, you know, is one degree of separation from someone who has a, a, a legal problem or a criminal problem. If I, you know, if I, if I walk into almost any any conference or any time we're speaking anywhere in the country, or especially on the coasts, right? And 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 I, and I ask people, um, raise your hand if if you have a, a a friend or a family member who has been prosecuted for crime, everyone raises their hand. Mm. So it, it's just the nature of, of, 
of of the society that we live in and people are are um there there's a different degree of tolerance that's that started and i i wouldn't say it's it's worked its way through to the workplace so much because people still find it very hard to get jobs right but but certainly um i don't think there's the kind of uh stigma that um was out there when we started and i'd like to think that at least part of that is because of the work that we and some other people in this in this little corner of the world have done. But yeah. I myself, for example, um, I was on the board of directors of a, of a major criminal justice organization, inner city criminal justice organization, um, not white collar. And um, in two, 2016, they asked me to step step off the board of directors and become the executive director of the organization. And I, that would have made me the first person in the country who was incarcerated for white-collar crime to become the CEO of a major criminal justice organization and, or to be appointed as one. Right. And, and I, you know, I, I had to talk to them. I said, you've got to know what you're doing here. <laughs> right. you, you know, I mean, I mean, there's there's intended uh, intended consequences and unintended consequences, right? And but um, they, they they knew they were making a bold move, and um, and um, it was a. I think it worked out, you know. The, so so not only was I an administrator, and we were running a ministry, and but I was, you know, I was a poster boy. And um, I had to take on the responsibility of that and like, be on best behavior, you know? I mean, uh, if, if this works, then the glass ceiling as to, as to white-collar criminals has lifted. You know, there, uh, you know, that's, that, uh, you know, the question of can we be trusted, you know, has been answered, at least in small part. So that was that was important, and certainly part of this journey that, you know, in the in the in the um, last two or three years, it was, it was important. And now, as a as a jumping off place, um, where the conversation can get real with actual people who are who are living on living on the edge of all this stuff, you know, where I could go on your podcast or on Rich Roll's podcast, or there's a few magazine articles that are coming out in the next couple of months, and they're not nobody's really interested in the sensationalized headline anymore you know everyone wants to get into the guts of it mm-hmm. like like what like what like 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 we do in aa and and it feels good to be able to talk about it on a human level that that we're that, you know that we're all suffering and and you don't have to be strapped to the side of a of a mountain with a with a bird pecking at your liver every morning <laughs> you know you know that that imagery doesn't have to be there it doesn't have to be mythic it's we're just people right and and all kinds of we've been through hell and um and even if it's a hell of our own making right it's still hell it's still hell Let's circle back to the, you mentioned that addiction and and kind of trajectories of bad decisions, like you have noticed and seen a correlation to childhood trauma and childhood shame and stuff. This is all very new to me. I've kind of been slapped in the face with it over the last four months with certain guests and all sorts of stuff. So let's talk about that a little bit. What have you learned? 
um, you know, there's, there, there definitely is a difference between what I've learned about myself and what I've learned in being ministering to or counseling others. So it's all been this, this self-reflective journey because I've learned about myself, much of it, through looking at them. And, and that's a very AA kind of experience, too. In in my in in I I learned um, you know I I had very absentee parents and um, and um, there was a lot of addiction a lot of mental illness in my in my extended family and I didn't understand how that was kind of preying on me you know mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know that I mean my mother was um, my mother was a, a party girl. She was like a 19th. My mother looked was a spitting image of uh, of Connie Stevens. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful woman, and um, who had a difficult marriage, and um, she wanted to be free. And she became a travel agent. She roamed all over the world, and I, I, I believe she loved me. And um, um, I was her eldest, so I probably got the best years of her life that she was, well, she was still kind of interested in being a mother. But after that, you know, she was literally all, literally all over the world. And, and, you know, we just saw her briefly, you know, while she was kind of unpacking and packing for the next thing. And, um, um, at, at her, at her funeral, after, after her funeral, you know, the, um, at Shiva, um, when uh, she had moved to Florida, our, our my my childhood next door neighbor was her best friend. So um, so um, we lived in the houses next door to each other in Long Island, and um, we got a chance to talk to this woman. Now it's you know almost it's fifty years later. I'm fifty some odd years old at that point, and so the, so she's probably in her late seventies or in there somewhere. And um, we said, like, what's the story? You know, I mean, because my, because my brother, my sister and I never really understood the story. And she told us, she said, I used to tell your mother that she was killing her children. Oh, my. And, um, and, she, and she, didn't change her, she didn't change her behavior. She just wanted to do what she wanted to do. And... Um, and, you know, there was a lot of years of, of blame about that with my mother. And my father was his own kind of checked out, um, um, bewitched Larry Tate kind of guy, you know, very checked out guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, no, you know, no more blame anymore. Nothing like that. Just, uh, just more uh, I, I want to see how it affects my decisions and anything hysterical is historical. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so what, you know, when I'm feeling rejected or abandoned somehow by someone in my life, it's usually not about what's in front of me. Right. It's, it's usually about tapping into those, those, those unresolved things from my childhood so I've spent a lot of time in therapy, you know, um, trying to clear them. And I've 
have therapists, uh, my current one who practices, you know, EMDR and tapping and mm-hmm. and whatever. And I'm open to anything, you know. I just don't want to be. I, I just don't want to be in pain anymore. And I want to make better decisions. I want to be a better role model for for my family. Right. I think the biggest thing that childhood has taught me is that I can look at a current situation, a current pattern that I might be doing, and I can point to directly where it started and and why I do that dumb thing or that pattern. You know, I'm trying to fulfill the need of X, Y, and Z that wasn't met or Mm. trying to repair myself or disappoint. You know, I can at least know where it started. And when I figured that out, it was like I could breathe for the first time in my life. Yeah, wow. Because you you know, one, it's not your quote-unquote fault, and now you have a choice in how you respond because you kind of know the deal. Well, for whatever it's worth, what I've, what I've learned about me, and you may wind up learning about yourself since I've been in therapy for 30 years, 30, 33 years, mm-hmm. is that um, – this is the whatever level of awareness I'm at at the current moment. It, I'm just passing through. Mm-hmm. There's a, going to be a new level of awareness somewhere down the line. And, and so, um, uh, what I'm committed to is the process. Right. And wherever that takes me, wherever that takes me. And, um, and sometimes it takes me into difficult places because uh, I really, really don't want to work on that stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> really, I really don't. You really, really don't want to. Really. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, and generally those are the places where I, I most desperately need to work on. So there's a lot of trust involved. And there's pain involved. But it's the pain of, like, letting go. It's not the, you know, and... Right. Because because neurotically, you know, I, I want to hold on to this stuff. It's you know, there's a there's a sick comfort in it. It's what I know. It's part of the story you've been telling. Exactly. When you yeah. have to change your story, things have to change, and that's scary. Exactly. Yeah. But but you know, there's uh, uh, things are so much better now. Oh my God, you know, it's like uh, but it took you know, it took a long time. Sure. Yeah. So where can people find out more about your ministry and, and your podcast and, and all of this so people can keep following you? Well, um, the website is prisonist.org, P-R-I-S-O-N-I-S-T, like feminist or womanist. It's prisonist. I guess I was lucky that that was available when I, uh, <laughs> when I bought the domain name. Right. Um, although I can tell you nobody's ever called up trying to buy it from me. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little corner of the world that it is. It's, it's yeah, that, a small pond you got ab- there. Ab- <laughs> absolutely, you know. And um, but prisonist.org and everything's everything's kind of there. Um, the uh, the the podcast is Criminal Justice Insider, and uh, there's a link on on prisonist.org to get to all the different you know all the different platforms we're on too. Um, we uh, we record. Uh, Criminal Justice Insider live in a uh, radio station in New Haven, Connecticut, near the Yale campus. Um, 
on the first and third Friday of, of the month. So some people do listen live. I mean, certainly the Connecticut criminal justice community does. But for everyone else, it's, you know, it's a podcast like any others. And yeah. and it doesn't have uh, anywhere near the production value of Retrolls. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing does. Nothing, Nothing does. does. I right? mean, I've got a mower outside, like whatever. It is what but, it is. <laughs> but I have learned a lot from this, uh, from, uh, from, from, from Retroll. I'm sure. I'm sure. You know what's so and, funny? You just said New Haven, Connecticut. I have a mm, funny story about that. Yeah. When I was a junior in high school, my mm-hmm. English teacher said you need to know things for cocktail party information and i was like what are you talking about and he said just you just need to know things like for example when someone says they went to yale you say new haven is lovely in the fall it was just so funny because i've never needed that and you just said new haven and i was ready to go yale is awesome you know like to use that cocktail party information i didn't get well but it's funny you said that (laughs) well you know here here's it i mean new haven is one of those areas that is that that the dichotomy is is present because it is very very poverty inner city mm. and at the same time there's Yale right and I mean I'm, I, I, there's a lot of other things in between but 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 the point is that the juxtaposition of those things and how and how they how they deal with one another in terms of um, uh, as communities is fascinating. And so at any given time on, on our criminal justice show where, 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 we're pulling from people who've been to prison and we're pulling from people who are, who are uh, somewhere in the academic world, for example, trying to do something about it. So it's a it's a very it, so at least the local portions of that show are are, are um, reflect all of that, but at this point we also have uh, national uh, guests on and uh, and people want to be on it. I, I think because um, Babs Rolls Ivy, who's my co-host, and I, we, you know, we, we've both been to prison, mm-hmm. and so uh, they know that they're going to uh, they make it tough questions, but they're going to get a fair shake. That's for sure. Yeah. So what's one thing that you do in your 24 hours that sets your day up for success? This podcast is called the same 24 hours. And I like to ask my guests like what they do in their 24 hours that, that sets them up for their best health, happiness and success. Okay. Well, so I'm going to give you a non, my non AA answer. I'm not that it's not me because, because I hold sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous at the, at the center of my life. So, right. so that's such an easy answer for me. But I'm going to try to give you a different answer, But even though I just cheated and told you what my real answer is. <laughs> that's okay. <clears throat> so a couple of years ago, um, my wife and my stepdaughter became yoga instructors. And, for, and in my early years in, um, in AA, there was like no way I could meditate. There was no, I mean, I didn't even get how that was part of the program, but now yoga and meditation are a, a real part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how I feel like my, my brain waves have shifted into a way where, where I'm calmer and more reflective and, and, and having that space of not thinking and not thinking about poor me or not thinking about, 
the, the complexities of not just my life, but all the people I'm working with in their lives. It's just a cleansing. And I recommend to these guys who go to prison, I said, take it up now. Because you don't know what you're walking into. And you could be walking into a situation where you don't have a lot of personal space or you don't have the luxury of of places to do anything but you can always meditate and you can always practice have a personal yoga practice right and so for the people who actually take me up on it um i'm not the yoga instructor i'm far from it <laughs> so, believe me that's not the point i'm making the point i'm making is that to turn turn myself over to this, it, it feels like it's an extension of my higher power, an offering from my higher power. Mm-hmm. And so, wow, what a difference that's made. And so we practice pretty much every day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say probably 85% of my guests say that. And I have been a resistant meditator just because I'm, I do what I want. And <laughs> I don't know. one can tell me what to do. Then, you could want this. I know. But then I had Emily Fletcher on the show and I still haven't published her episode because I keep waiting to like report because I've been meditating mm. and um, I did it for 30 days, twice a day and it shifted everything for me. And then I went into trauma therapy and then I couldn't meditate because it was like too, of course, yeah. too like, collision so now i'm doing like morning pages which is a form of meditation when you sure. think about it yep. um but i haven't been back on the meditation but i can tell that my body i can tell a vast difference so i need to kind of figure out how i can deal with the dark thoughts plus the meditation i, I don't know when that'll be but i yeah i'm with you it it, it was a game changer for me yeah i mean there, yeah. there there are times in in all of this i haven't actually been able to cross leg meditate eyes closed kind of you know like a buddha but certainly uh, uh, my my practice of mindfulness has shifted completely and i can be in a i can be in a, like a moving meditation or in a mindfulness kind of meditation when i'm driving a car right you know i'm not i'm no longer trying to speed past the exits you know i'm trying to i'm i'm, I'm experiencing actually where i am mm mm-hmm. mhm so that, I mean, that, that, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff. This was great. I appreciate you sharing your story and, and yeah. all the work you do. It's yeah. Thank you. Stuff. Thank you, Meredith. And yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm.